This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Gender, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Zerlina Maxwell about her new book, The End of White Politics, How to Heal Our Liberal Divide, which is coming out on July 7th of 2020. Welcome, Zerlina. Thanks for having me. I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself. Um, so where to begin? I, I guess I'll start out by telling you what my titles are, and then I'll, I'll explain how I got there, because um, it's a little bit unusual. Um, I have a radio show on SiriusXM um, called Signal Boost with my co-host, Jess McIntosh. Um, I am an MSNBC political analyst where I go on television and talk about politics and particularly busy during the election season. Um, and I also wrote, as you, as you said in the intro, this new book, The End of White Politics. Um, so those, those are my titles and sort of like what I do. Um, but I, I sort of think about who I am um, in terms of values and my value sets and, you know, the groups of people that I care about. Um, obviously, your family always comes first. But I think of, um, you know, who I am as a larger question about, um, you know, how I see the world. And so um, that led me from going um, to law school. Um, I went to undergrad at Tufts University, went to Rutgers Law School. Um, and it was during my time at Rutgers that I started writing about politics. I had worked for Obama in 2008 um, as a field organizer in the state I'm in now, ironically, Virginia. And I just, I've always been obsessed with politics. And so, you know, for me, it felt natural to work. Um, and I was very much um, attracted to the idea of being a part of history and being a part of something that had never happened before. In that case, it was electing the first black uh, president. And during the time um, in between um, 2008 and 2016, when I worked for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign, um, I went to law school. I finished that up, um, but then still decided that I enjoyed writing and talking and thinking about politics more and working in politics. Um, because for me, uh, a big value is being passionate about the thing that I'm doing every day. So, um, you know, if I was working in politics in some way, whether it be on the media side or on the campaign side, it allowed me to do things every day where I felt like I was changing the things in the world that I see that I don't that I don't particularly like, that I think are unfair, that are unjust, that I want to change. Um, and so 
I think one of the things that um, drives me is is that value set of just wanting the world to be fair and just and you know being a little bit righteous in that regard but um you know that's who I am and so that's that's actually what led me to to writing this book as well well that leads to my next question which is what inspired you to write the book and you pretty vividly set that up for us in uh in the beginning where you're at Politicon in LA on this hot day in July of 2018 i suspect the roots of it are are Earlier than that, but that's a really fascinating moment there. And you say that that's where the spark of the book was born. Would you like to share that inspiration for the book with us and that whole Politicon moment? It was fun to sort of reflect back on that experience because, um, you know, what I describe in the the book actually is something that happened two years in a row. Um, But I'm only actually describing one of the years this happened at Politicon. So um, this most recent year at Politicon in Nashville, Tennessee, the same exact thing happened. I was on a panel of like progressives, sort of middle of the road, more traditional Democrats. And, you know, they were, um, you know, each, everybody was articulating sort of their vision for the Democratic Party at the time. Um, it was, uh, in the fall. So I think it was before the, um, the midterm elections. No. That was last year. So it was it was before um, impeachment and everything like that. But it was a moment that was in the middle of the 2020 Democratic primary. And so it was a very similar setup where the audience was, you know, pretty mixed. A lot of Bernie supporters, some Trump supporters in the MAGA hats. Um, then there's also celebrities, Fox News pundits, you know, Ann Coulter, Alyssa Milano. It's, it's a very weird hodgepodge of people, but everybody sort of has an interest in politics. And in this particular moment, it's a little bit of a circus, right? Because, you know, Donald Trump is the president and that, you know, in and of itself sort of lends sort of the political conversation um, to a very particular, you know, group of people that is sort of just there to sort of see what happens. Like, they're not, you know, policy wonks. They're just sort of you know, interested in sort of the show of it all. And that's kind of what this conference felt like. But the the setup really for the book, for me, I think is largely inspired by the fact that, you know, Black people and Black women in particular are always, they always say, you know, Black women are the base of the Democratic Party and Black women are the, the foundation. Um, and we owe so much to Black women and women of color uh, who vote uh, on the Democratic side. And yet, the way that we're spoken about, um, spoken at um, by progressives or by the quote-unquote establishment, um, we're sort of an afterthought. You know, we're assumed that we're going to vote for Democrats, so we're essentially like an afterthought. And when you tried to present that to the group, they actually, you say they booed and you had to be... Escorted out by security. Yeah. It wasn't just that it, they couldn't listen; it's that they were aggressively hostile to that message that you brought. It was a little scary. I'm not going to lie. Um, you know, it was Politicon already sort of made sure that each of the speakers had a security person, sort of in your area, in case anything got too rowdy. Because you know, I think one of the things that people don't realize, and I'm I'm only sort of dipping a toe into 
this small notion of sort of being a public figure. Um, but obviously, you know, when you when you sort of somebody who's on camera, people forget that you're a person a lot of the time. And so, you know, people just follow you around or walk, you know, and do things that they wouldn't do to a normal, a regular person in an almost a humanizing way. So, yeah, they had to escort me sort of out because people were just trying to get in my face and continue the debate or tell me. Some people were saying good things, but it was just a lot all at once. And so for for me, it sort of was representative of how I feel in the party sometimes. Um, where, you know, black, black women in particular are asked to sort of bear the brunt of the policies that are impacting us in a negative way, but we're not allowed to like speak up when we see something or a lack of understanding of our interests, um, a lack of care, uh, for policy that's going to impact our interests, um, when it comes time to, you know, pick candidates or, pick a message or a mechanism um, through which to communicate that message. I just feel like I was tired of being an afterthought, even though I was getting yelled at. I was like, no, no, I demand to be heard and seen. Um, and it, remind, it, it reminds me of something Stacey Abrams um, said recently in an interview that I had with her, where she talked about identity politics as sort of, you know, saying to, to black women and black people or people who are a different identity than white, I see you and your concerns matter. And, you know, here are the policy solutions and here's how we're going to go about doing it. But it's, it's really about, um, for me, in that moment in Politicon, it was like, no, you have to see me because I actually, I am the voting block in the Democratic Party that wins elections. It's actually not the um, the folks who think, you know, that they're the base. There are a lot of people who think they're the base and they are not. And all the data shows that I am the base and the future of where we're headed as a party looks like me, looks like Ayanna Presley and Stacey Abrams and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right? And I feel like that was a moment where it occurred to me that maybe I was one of the only people who realized that, that this, you know, bending over backwards to try to court the white working class male voter, you know, is, is a strategy of the past. Um, and it's not a reflection of who we are as a party or where we're headed as a party. And you talk about that theme throughout every chapter in your book that, there's this persistent challenge for the movement that there's a continual lack of self-awareness about our own biases and that the political system benefits those at the top and those at the top have historically been white males. And so when you bring your message of change and how it will look, you're, you're met with these anxiety responses that get incredibly aggressive. Um, and one chapter where you very vividly talk about an experience of that was chapter two, where the Bernie bros came after you on social media. Um, would you tell us that story and, and how that really reflects your overall uh, message of the book? Well, I think that, you know, I, what I was trying to establish is that not all Bernie supporters are like this. Um, but I think that there's this false narrative that 
Bernie Bros as a phenomenon is, you know, a made up thing of hysterical feminists who are just too sensitive um, to take criticism or disagreement. And I just think that like, one, that's not the case. I can take plenty of criticism and disagreement. Um, Two, it's just an assumption that because, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of assumptions going to, um, you know, the point of identity. There's a lot of assumptions about who I am and what I believe because of who I worked for or, you know, where I went to school or, where, you know, where I grew up. And I think that we all make those assumptions about other people. Um, and so in terms of the Bernie Bros, they assume that I don't agree with them on policy because I worked for Hillary Clinton. And I think, one, that's we, we should all just stop doing that, um, you know, because people... There are a lot of reasons why I thought that Hillary Clinton would be the best candidate for the Democratic nomination and, you know, would have made a better president, obviously, than Donald Trump. Um, But, yeah, I agree with Medicare for all. And I wish that, you know, um, a lot of candidates were further to the left on that. However, I do see nuance in terms of legislating because you're always going to have to compromise. And so I, I think of it as a value set. And so with the Bernie bros coming at me the way that they do, there's an incident, an anecdote in the book where I talk about how one of the actors from one of my favorite movies, Say Anything, John Cusack, he, you know, I didn't even know really what was happening. A lot of times what happens is you'll just suddenly get, I don't have notifications on per se, but when I go into my social media feeds, I'll notice like there's obviously an uptick of like activity. And it's like, you know, chill, you know, like name calling. And so I'm like, what has happened? Somebody has tweeted, quote tweeted something about me or taken a tweet that I wrote or, you know, said something and tagged me, which is leading to all of these replies. And and so there was one instance where it was John Cusack. And I joke that like literally he's an actor from one of my favorite movies growing up, but he also happens to like Bernie Sanders and not like you know, Hillary Clinton, anybody associated with her, or people who, you know, appear in the mainstream media spaces. And so he started to attack me, which then sort of leads a swarm of other folks into my mentions. And then you sort of have to kind of put down your Twitter for like three full days, up to a week before it's like usable again, because of just the the quantity of it. Um, then they migrate over to your Instagram and they're like commenting on photos of you and your dad. And you're just like, okay, this is, you know, <laughs> um, it can get um, toxic. I think it's toxic. Um, and so I, I, I like to call it out because I just think that as a party, we can't, we have to be better than the, you know, any opponents or, you know, partisan opposition that you know, is flagrantly doing things that are harmful to black people, brown people, women, you know, like we cannot mimic the behaviors of people that we are trying to, you know, say that we, we have the right policy and the right mindsets um, to make the world more fair. We can't then treat people unfairly. And one of the things you say in your book about the treating unfairly and, and the rush to respond is that there's this rush to judgment versus an impulse to listen. 
And our judgments are often what hold us back from winning as a party and from finding the intersectionality and finding the common ground. And what you were highlighting in the, in the Bernie Bros story, which is not all, all Bernie Bros, but the ones who you had this very difficult experience with, was their lack of awareness of their white male privilege and their lack of awareness of the role of sexism. Um, and in the next chapter of White Resistance, you say, when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. It feels like losing control of the wheel. Um, do you think part of, uh, do you think that's a lot of what you're experiencing and why the party can't come together? I think that's what the whole country is experiencing. Um, and that's part of why America is having a hard time coming together. So I think in, cer- in certain ways, the analysis in the book of the Democratic Party um, you know, you can extrapolate that out and, and sort of look at America and our history in relationship to white supremacy and racism and say, you know, the first thing you have to do is confront the fact that there is a problem here. And that's sort of like where we're at now in the bigger picture. But I think as the Democratic Party, we're definitely more aware of the fact that we have these issues and we definitely know we don't want to be like Republicans. Right. So we we don't want to be overtly racist, but we're not then able to look and into ourselves. And I'm saying as a party and also as a person who's involved in, in the media space, you know, I just think that we default to one type of experience when we're storytelling, when we're covering the news and we're covering stories, when we're centering certain narratives and telling people this is what matters and these are the people that are important. Um, and I just think that that's an old way of thinking, particularly because of where we're headed in terms of the demographic shift. And so, you know, this particular moment, you're seeing sort of the the conflict and the collision of, you know, the pandemic, which exposed many of the systemic inequalities that people had been talking about, particularly on the left, um, you know, that that were were impacting certain groups. Um, and it wasn't just poor people and it wasn't, you know, it's not all poor people being impacted the same. It's not it's it's intersectional in a way. Right. Because, you know, it's the, the data sh- is showing that it's black people and brown people that are being most impacted um, and dying. Um, and there's a lot of different factors in terms of, you know, that that lead to those poor health outcomes, whether it be um, socioeconomic status, geography and location to um, the appropriate type of um, hospitals with with the amount of capacity necessary to treat them. So. I think it's complicated, but I think as a party, we have to confront the fact that racism is an issue on in our party as well. And until we're able to do that, we're not any better than the Republicans, um, because at least they're sort of more honest about <laughs> what they're about, <laughs> which is, you know, yes, they're 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 saying horrible, horribly bigoted things often, um, and not even really a dog whistle anymore in the case of Donald Trump. But we have to be a little bit better about how we're also elevating inclusive and diverse voices and politicians um, into positions of power within our party and our legislatures um, so that everyone is fully represented. Because, you know, I don't it's it shouldn't be the case that in 2020, when I watch election coverage, I know probably every single pie graph breakdown of the white vote by age, marital status, gender. Sometimes you even have it by, um, you know, uh, 
more rural versus urban voters, ex-urban voters. I mean, like, there's so many different variations of uh, a description and nuance when you're talking about white voters. There's very little when you're talking about anyone who's not white. And so that's where we have the work to do just in terms of our party messaging, our party leadership and infrastructure, and then also how the media has to cover it as well. Because I think that there's a little bit in there as a member of the media. Um, I have a little bit of a critique of us as well and how we, we talk about things. Um, because I think the future is going to look, the future looks like the squad. Um, and that's the future of the party. And I think of the nation and perhaps that's why you see a lot of what you see in the streets right now. Um, because there's a collision happening, um, between the demographics, um, and the reality that up until now, we've had a white supremacist country that prioritizes the needs, wants, and desires of certain types of people at the expense of other people, other types of people. Um, and, and that just can't hold any longer. I think that once you have uh, the amount of voters in a system, of course, where there's fair and <laughs> fair voting and the machines work and all of those things, right? You're caveating um, the system works fairly and it's not rigged. Um, that that means that that power in numbers then becomes power in representation and actually political power. So that that's going to reshape everything and I think transform our country for the better. And you say in the book that the people closest to the pain need to be closest to the power. Can you say more about how about the squad, uh, what that means and who's in it and how uh, they have ideas about that? Sure. So uh, the, the people closest to the pain need to be closest to the power is in Ayanna Presley quote. Um, she's the first black congresswoman from the state of Massachusetts. And she says that that's how she, she, she believes that she is somebody um, who legislates um, through compassion. And she, she jokes that policy is her love language, right? So when she's talking about the people being closest to the pain, being the closer to the power, it means that people who are in positions of power have had lived experiences and have a lens into the experiences of all types of people. Because if you look at the Senate, um, or even the House of Representatives, which is more diverse, but but not enough, right? You're just lacking in lived experiences, right? How are you going to write a, a bill addressing pay equity? And the nuances of that, meaning that, you know, when we hear a white woman makes 77 cents to the dollar, you know, you're sort of leaving out now, now, uh, everyone knows enough to add on Oh well, actually, for Black women it's sixty-four, and for for Latina women it's fifty-four. Um, how are you going to be able to address those types of disparities unless you have people who have either lived in that experience and have a fully internalized understanding, or people who really understand that experience, like because they had to do a lot of work to listen to those communities? And while I would love for you know the ninety. <laughs> Um, seven white senators, well, I guess you would say 96, 96, um, 96 white senators, I would love them to understand the experiences of this multiracial nation that we live in, but that's just 
first of all, they're not demonstrating that that's, that's the case. Um, half of them being Republican. Um, but also, you know, why should I have to rely upon the traditional model of white male leadership um, when I know better, when I know that it does make for better legislating um, around issues of poverty and gender um, discrimination when Ayanna Presley knows what it's like to be discriminated against. And so she then knows better how to shape policy to address that issue. She, she, she is a survivor of sexual violence, so she then knows the nuance uh, and intersectional analysis necessary to address that issue because she's actually either lived through it, knows somebody who's lived through it, and it's not an intellectual exercise for her. And so I think that's, for me, what it is. It's like sometimes people, I, I heard somebody on TV the other day say uh, something, and the end of the sentence was, you know, that's where Donald Trump stands on the racism debate. That was the quote. And I, I was in the other room, and I sort of ran over, and I, was, I asked my dad, <laughs> I'm quarantined with, um, you know, did they just say the racism debate? Is that what they said? Like, it's a debate. Like, we're going to debate racism. Like, at five, you know, like one side, pro, one. That's not how the world is. First of all, it's not a debate. It is an objective fact, right? And so I think we're in a moment now where we just require more nuance, not less. And we require more representation, not less. And we require people in all facets of our society who come from different backgrounds. I think we're just, we're not, it, I, I'm not for diversity for diversity's sake or because it, it's a pretty picture um, to have a woman in the photo. Um, I need the woman's perspective because I know that she has lived um, in a woman's body. <laughs> I know that, um, you know, a black person understands what it's like to move throughout the world as a black person, to have all of the, the you know, unfair assumptions made about you or who you are as a black woman. I know that people assume all kinds of things about me and I haven't even spoken words. Um, and, you know, I'm nice. I'm not nice. I'm friendly. I'm angry. I'm hostile. I've been called all of those kinds of, I'm angry. Um, and I haven't even spoken words. So how would you, you know, so I think when you're, when you're thinking through, even in the policy sense, the people closest to the pain, it's, you need people in positions of power who actually understand the impact of policy on real people and the reason why you need the policy. Right. I mean, it was always so fascinating to me during the Obama administration and the issue of police brutality is a perfect example, um, because you can see now that the Trump administration puts out sort of like a toothless executive order, um, which basically says, like, we're not going to do anything about it. <laughs> That's basically like the summary of it. Um, you know, everything sort of stays as it is. We feel sad, but we're not going to do anything. When you had President Obama and Eric Holder, you didn't have to go in and convince them that policing, you know, led to racist outcomes. The culture of policing led to ra racist outcomes and harmful outcomes for certain communities. You have the stats. You have all of the proof and scientific evidence to say, here, this is all of the data. This shows that this is a thing. It needs a policy solution. But if you have people in the positions of authority who ha understand that lived experience, you don't have to convince them that racism is real before they're like, yes, we should do something about that. They're already ready and they, you don't have to you know, do the debate team argument 
they're already on that page with you. So when you have somebody in a position of power who has had a diverse set of lived experiences, you just your your empathy is easier to find, and therefore your policy solutions are going to be much more effective. So I think, you know, the, that Ayanna Presley quote is, I think, one of the um, most impactful because it demonstrates one of the things we've been missing in our policymaking, one of the things that we absolutely need in our policymaking. And one of the things that we absolutely are able to do in the future, because if we're able to elect people from all different backgrounds, imagine, you know, the kind of world we could possibly create, um, you know, and actually live up to an ideal that we keep saying that we would want to be. Um, but if we're only, you know, allowing for one kind of person's perspective and vision to be centered and cared about. Um, you're limited in how far you can go as a country and I think, you know, as the Democratic Party as well. And you say in the book that marginalized communities are asked to ignore their oppression to make it more comfortable for white Americans to engage. And you also say that one of the default answers of the Democratic Party has been that we're actually in a post-racial America. Uh, and so there's a, a default uh, uh, identity, which is white, but white is now to be seen as neutral because we're, we're post-racial. Um, and you say that's not a thing because you can't take off your gender or your identity like a pair of pants, which I think is my favorite sentence <laughs> ever. Yeah. Um, and you say we've always been doing identity politics in the U.S., but white was the only identity that mattered. Um, was that the chord that you touched on at Politicon when they were booing you? Is that is that the the chord that that is the the place where all the ugly comes out? Well, I think that that's something that I always say. So it's not just something that upset the folks at Politicon. I think it's something that upsets people everywhere I go um, because I think there's a defensiveness that sometimes happens. And when I say identity, I mean in terms of more in terms of racial identity, not in terms of, obviously, there's a whole uh, um, area and conversation around gender identification. But I mean, in terms of, um, you know, the way you move throughout the world, that's obviously a very, very, you know, how you identify as a personal decision. There's also sort of how you're treated by everyone else, and how a lot of times you are not given a choice right? In, in terms of, you know, how you present certain aspects of your identity um, to the public and then how, the, how that is impacted. And so I think, you know, what I'm trying to get at there is the fact that bringing up the fact that I'm a woman, bringing up the fact that I'm black is not divisive. You know, pointing it out, pointing it out, pointing out that, you know, um, trans women of color, um, you know, have a diverse array of experiences, but also we really should center their concerns because if we're able to address, um, you know, their uh, socioeconomic status, poverty, homelessness, um, the violence committed against trans women's bodies, um, and particularly black trans women's bodies, um, then we'll be will be better able to center the needs of everyone else because their their needs are actually the most pressing in this moment. I mean, it just feels for, for me like we all move throughout the world. 
and people treat us good or bad or indifferent based on how we look. So whether that's something deep like, you know, your actual identity or whether or not it's because you decided to dye your hair purple, um, I think fundamentally that's wrong <laughs> um, and then should not then inform the policymaking priorities we make either. So I think, you know, what I'm trying to get at is the fact that we literally have not even questioned the fact that the only person's concerns we really ever talk about are white men. Like, why do we keep going to the diner and talking to the white men who flipped from Obama to Trump? Like, why do we keep going back and talking to the same people? Why are we, why are we, why is everyone on all sides of the political spectrum focused on the same group? Um, you know, at the expense of the concerns and needs of other people, and then bringing up that disparity and bringing up the fact that you're leaving out everyone from the conversation, that then is met with a defensive response of, um, you know, like, oh, you're being divisive because you're playing the race card, or oh, you're playing the woman card. I remember Donald Trump said that about Hillary Clinton um, in 2016. And I just think that, you know, identity matters in politics. And we have to start acting like it. Um, and also that a, a white man has an identity. <laughs> you know, for some reason, we, we're, we default to um, the, the notion that, like, white is not, like, white is where we start and everything is then identity politics. Instead of saying that everything is identity politics and white is an identity that has certain characteristics and certainly has... Um, you know, uh, certain context within the political conversation as well. So I th I, I'm crying out for nuance <laughs> is what I would like. And in and, and that quote, I'm trying to hit on the fact that, you know, there are, there are differences in the way that we are treated and we have to accept that and say it out loud. And then we can start to, to move and change um, once we're better able to say, Wait, we do treat women differently than men in, in you know, in the same situation. Um, there is data to back up the fact that women are paid less for the same work. That and and we can explore all the reasons why, but ultimately we want to change the policy around that to uh, make the world more equitable. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And you say in the book that it's the work of progressives to think beyond the default identity that, that we've just been discussing. And you say... Um, what you call the hashtag kids, the millennials and the Gen Z who are in the younger generation of Democrats, they get it and that they are embracing the need to join our intersecting interests, even though the establishment Dems aren't. And you provide a lot of numbers that this group, your hashtag kids, are actually a larger group than the boomers who will be turning out to, um, to vote. And then you also um, reference at several points in the book that there's 4 million people who turned out for Obama who didn't turn out for Hillary or for Trump. And so 
reaching these these groups uh, and uh, bringing in their numbers to the poll makes an exponential difference over going after those 77,000 swing voters who didn't swing the way the Democrats wanted. Can you can you talk more about that? Yeah, it feels to me like we're we're just talking to people who we're trying to find this mythical voter, right, who who flipped from from Obama to Trump, who we've been told is a white man who's working class, right? We that's what we've been told. And that and that the problem is that the, is that they flipped from Obama to Trump. But I think what I'm trying to say is that I'm more concerned with the people who flipped from Obama to staying home and that there are more of those people and that those people obviously participated in the process. And there's a whole group of people who've never participated in the process um, who would love to participate, but for the fact that they're not given a reason. No one's trying to speak to them. No one's trying to message them. Nobody's trying to get them engaged in you know, policy ideas or shaping their communities. And I, one thing I think is clear is that Generation Z is not waiting for permission to do those things. I think that that's one thing that makes them a little different than millennials, a little different than Generation um, X as well. Um, because I think climate change actually plays a factor. I mean, I, I just think that sort of the timetable on um, disengagement um, got very small. Um, and the window of time for which we need to address so many of these issues um, became, oh, wait, that's like in a decade. Like, I'll be alive for that, you know? And I think, you know, this generation is is living through, millennials in particular now are living through their second um, financial downturn and, you know, in their adult life. And it feels like, the systems that we were told, you know, that were that we should put our faith into, you know, are breaking down and fundamentally are we're not as solid as we were led to believe. And I'm not saying that I believed any of those things, but I'm saying I do think that there's a generational impact on sort of the failures of some of these systems. Um, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan is probably where I came to my sort of political awakening around uh, the government misleading the American electorate and and doing things that had deadly consequences. And so I think that living through this particular period, you know, Generation Z and millennials, they're the largest, they're the most diverse, and Generation Z even more so than millennials in some ways, um, they are definitely not waiting for permission. They are engaged as much as um, their parents, if not more, on many of the social issues. I think part of the reason why you're seeing uh, so many people involved in Black Lives Matter more so than ever before that are not Black, because you have, uh, this is my theory anyway, you have college and high school age um, Generation Zs it quarantined with their parents. Um, and so you have an intergenerational dialogue happening where people are quarantined with their college student who's like, what do you mean you don't, you don't support Black Lives Matter? Black people are people. Um, and, you know, I think their ability to utilize technology and the tools that social media provide to communicate, to organize, 
um, and to bring awareness to these issues, to educate each other and their family members around these issues, that's what sets them apart. It's not that, you know, Generation Z um, wasn't protesting the same things that millennials and Generation Z are now. It's that the tools that we have to communicate and organize are advanced and sophisticated. Um, and, you know, I love to see sort of the culmination of our um, reckoning around race in this country um, happening, you know, not just in the street, but also in social media spaces. Um, and I, I, I've long thought it would happen here eventually because I remember joining Twitter right around the time the Arab Spring was happening. And I remember talking to somebody about, you know, could something like that happen here around issues of racism and police brutality and, you know, systemic inequality. And I remember somebody, it was an older person. I think they were Generation Z. Maybe they were a bloomer, young bloomer. And they were like, you kids, you, you don't know how to protest. You know, in the back in the day with Vietnam, we knew how to protest. And all you guys, you're just Twittering and hashtagging. Um, and I, I was sort of insulted by the notion. But, but I think that, you know, the perception of the younger generation is that they are not engaged in politics. And certainly the, num the turnout numbers do sometimes indicate, not in 2018 and not in 2019, but I think certainly um, lower than expected turnout in 2016. But in 2020, I fully imagine that after, you know, spending a better part of 2020 in quarantine, you know, a 19-year-old probably, one, they probably don't have anything else to do that day, <laughs> um, but vote. Um, but also, I think they're going to be more motivated because the consequence of inaction, the consequence of um, negligent leadership um, and the inability for the federal government to adequately respond to the crisis that is still unfolding around us, I think that there isn't anything more engaging than when your life is on the line. And so for maybe the first couple of years of this administration, that was only maybe true for you know, black, black and brown people or, you know, children who are separated from their parents on the border. They, they were the only communities who were directly impacted physically um, by Donald Trump's policies um, in, in such a visceral way. But I think now that we're all in quarantine, in a lot of ways that has transferred and made it a more universal experience. And I'm hopeful that the largest and most diverse generations of millennials and Generation Z uh, can participate in numbers that we've never seen before to completely remake the legislator into a place that actually looks like America. You say in the book, it's women and people of color who have the numbers. The power is in our hands. You also say in the book, you have concerns about voter suppression that you feel the Democratic Party must address because rights aren't rights if there's no access. Um, can you Can you talk about that? Sure. So in 2016, um, you know, one of the things that I remember being sort of a through line throughout is that, you know, we're concerned about voter suppression as a campaign and as a party, but we, we shouldn't really talk about it too much because then that makes it seem to the electorate that we need to turn out like it's hard to vote. Like voting is a difficult process. 
um, and there are new laws around it, which makes people think that they could go to jail if they do it wrong. You know, it just it's you, you want to make it as appealing and, and easy to people as possible. And I think that voter suppression and voter ID, um, bringing us back to sort of um, the work that Stacey Abrams has been focused on in Georgia and around the country um, post her election in 2018, is is the idea that you can't you don't have a, you don't have your full uh, slate of rights and liberties if you can't access the ballot if you can't safely access the ballot if you have to stand in a line for eight hours in the rain like people were last week in Georgia um, if if um, you don't have that right unless you have really the ability to access it in a reasonable fashion and standing on a line for eight hours in the rain is not reasonable there are better ways to do it and there's obviously technology that can be utilized in 2020 um, or just you know, old school paper ballots that we can mail in because that works. And then you have a paper record of everything anyway. Um, So for me, I think the concern around voter suppression is a very real one because in 2016, um, we really didn't talk about it enough. And I think that, you know, you can't, you can't um, quantify the impact of Russian interference, but I absolutely can quantify the impact of the people who were not able to vote in Wisconsin because of cross-check, you know, a policy where the names have to match if you move from one state or to another state with that policy in place, or, um, you know, with a voter ID law like the one they had in Wisconsin in 2016, which um, blocked more voters from voting than the margin of Trump's victory. And so voter suppression, for me, it should, along with sort of centering um, the perspectives of, of the diverse party that we are, it has to be a central focus because no matter how good your message is, if you can't actually get the voters to the polls and, and allow them to be able to cast their ballots in a safe and easy and fair manner, then what is the point of this whole thing that we really don't have the democracy that we say we do? Um, so voter suppression, obviously, is something that, you know, as a party, I think that should be our central focus, honestly, because of who our voters are. But also, I think Republicans have been operating um, as if they completely have internalized the Pew Research data. They know that they are, a, you know, a, a party that has a base that is growing, uh, that is decreasing, excuse me, in size and proportion to the larger electorate. That they, you know, they know their, their voters are older and whiter and that they are failing to appear to this ne- these two next generations of voters, um, simply because Generation Z and Millennials, they are for marriage equality and LGBTQ equality and racial equality and gender equality. And, and, and sure, there's a lot to unpack in terms of you know, personal interactions and whether or not every, each individual person in those generations is living up to the ideals. Um, but certainly in terms of policymaking, um, they're much more progressive. And so the party has to understand that in order for our, our future to look um, the way the country does, all of those new voters, those people of color, those black people, those brown people who are going to now be uh, a majority of the electorate uh, by 2045, they also need the ability to access the ballot. 
Um, and so none of this is guaranteed unless they have that access. You talked in the, when you introduced yourself that you worked on both the Obama campaign and on the Clinton campaign. If we could go back to um, what you call the Obama coalition in chapter four, um, you talk about how he had a number of grassroots initiatives that you feel are really important for us to revisit. Um, and one was neighbor to neighbor. Um, and that overall, the, the approaches that he took sent a strong message that instead of being an afterthought, these people were central to the focus of the Democratic Party and that the candidate right now needs to needs to go back to presenting that message again. Um, can you talk about how you participated in those things during the um, Obama um, election? So during 2008's uh, campaign, I was a field organizer. So that, for folks who don't know much about campaigning, that's the, the grunt work of a campaigning. That's knocking on doors. Well, when we could do that and making phone calls and um, working with volunteers to build teams in the community. So it's not Obama. President Obama came from a community organizing background. Um, and that informed his strategies for how he would build out his field staff and field organization. And I think a lot of those, um, a lot of the, that mindset um, is now infused in a lot of what Democrats are doing on all levels. Because, you know, any Democrat will say, you know, we got to knock on doors. We got to, you know, talk to people, talk to voters. They always give that spiel. Um, but oftentimes we're still we're just talking to the same people. We're just talking to the people that are um, that vote every single time, and we know they're going to vote, and they probably don't need to be reminded, but we're going to remind them anyway at the expense of taking the time to remind someone who you know maybe missed every other election the past decade or so. Um, and I think one of the things that um, President Obama did well is the neighbor to neighbor program. It's not that it, that was some sort of revolutionary new technology. It was essentially just saying, look, people are going to be more likely to be persuaded to vote for a particular person if they know you, like know you, really know you, right? You're their neighbor across the street. They see you get your mail. You see, you've seen their kids grow up. You meet, you see them in the grocery store. And so if they're telling you about a particular candidate or, or about a particular policy, then you're more willing to hear them out. So that's what the neighbor neighbor program was. And it wasn't the first Democrat that ever did that. But I think that what he did particularly well is use the technology available at the time. At the time, it was sort of Obama, you know, dot com was uh, or Barack Obama dot com was, you know, uh, revolutionary because it was almost like a social media platform. Right. At the time, they had like message boards and groups and you could like find other people in your area who liked Obama and you could have a house party and you could organize it. I mean, it was almost like Facebook, but for a political campaign. So in, in, um, in 2008, you know, utilizing the technology and the tools, I thought that that was really innovative because it allowed for people to create community-based groups, um, you know, surrounded by similar and shared political interests. And now that's just, that doesn't even seem revolutionary because that's how we do everything now. <laughs> um, you know, that's how most social media sites operate now. Um, that's how Instagram functions. That's how TikTok, you know, like everything's sort of centered around sort of your shared interests. And then, you know, you find people who have those shared interests or 
you're all live tweeting the same TV show with the same hashtag or um, whatever it is. But when Obama did it, it was like sort of the newest, you know, strategy of a political political campaign at the time that people thought was really um, transformational. And I agree it was. One of the things that's fallen off is that, you know, instead of allowing for, you know, political candidates to to build out those community-based systems, um, you have a lot of, like, top-down talking at communities happening, um, or you have complete and total neglect. So one of the things I think is important to sort of glean upon from the Obama campaign, and I'm not saying that we didn't do this in 2016. I do actually think the 2016 campaign, in hindsight, was a lot better than people remember it as because we did not win the Electoral College. So there were a lot of things the campaign did that I thought were excellent. I thought the narrative of sort of making sure that we're fighting for all of the different iterations and intersections of rights, that is something that became normalized in uh, 2016 when you're talking about, and we're going for gay rights and black people's rights and, you know, queer uh, LGBTQ rights and um, rights for people with different abilities um, and and just like fighting for different communities. That's something that really was centered um, in 2016 and reestablished in 2016. Because remember, gay marriage happened during the Obama administration, right? So, I mean, we've just come so far right from that time when we were just like using the neighbor to neighbor program. But I still do think that because we're such a diverse array of um, interesting communities, particularly as a party, um, I think going forward, we need to tap into our tech savvy and creativity. And the fact that we have all of these diverse interests and array of concerns in how we're communicating to those different groups. So I don't know if, I mean, that's a long way to explain the fact that in this election cycle, I'm not seeing enough, you know, celebrity surrogates. I'm not seeing enough athletes. I'm not, I mean, everybody's very much attuned to Black Lives Matter right now. And everybody's trying to say the right thing and do the right thing right now. But, you know, there has to be a moment where we pivot to the political process, because the only way any of these issues get solved is through legislating. That's one piece of it. And so voting is an essential piece of it. It is uh, necessary, but not sufficient. Um, But it is necessary, which means that everybody has to be engaged. And one of the ways to do that is to get people talking about it and to to have people talking to, to their neighbors about these issues and how they're going to work to solve these problems. And the book repeatedly makes this case for inclusion. Um, one of the concerns you have uh, in Chapter 7 uh, is that Joe Biden isn't able to articulate uh, a clear plan for inclusion, a clear message that will bring out the 4.4 million people who sat out um, the 2016 election. Um, and you provided a couple of transcripts of him answering questions specifically about um issues that really, really matter to the base. And um, it was difficult to uh, ascertain exactly what his position on that was. And in chapter seven, you really talk about how the messaging has to be able to reach people in a clear way. And your concern is that that's not something that he's doing. Can you talk more about that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, anybody who watched the debates understands that sometimes Joe Biden, the vice president, uh, is less less than excellent at um, articulating himself in a clear and concise manner. Uh, and I think that the media and news cycle, the way that it is, with social media and people tweeting out just one quote, um, you know, we've already seen him sort of get trapped up and tricked up and, um, you know, sort of moments where he's committed a gaffe, shall we say. Um, but I actually think it's it's even bigger than sort of like um, the fact that the vice president may sometimes be, be gaffe prone. I actually think it's, it's both um, understanding and having no fear of offending sort of polite company, if you will, right? So I think that when you um, are listening to Joe Biden, you know, answer a question in a debate about white privilege or police brutality, um, there are correct answers to those questions. <laughs> or um, if somebody says, this happened many times during the primary, um, you know, do you think the people that voted for Donald Trump are racist. Um, that was a question that they would always ask Democrats because, you know, Democrats, the media knows that Democrats are also trying to woo over those Obama-Trump voters. And so they have to somehow answer this question without calling those people racist because the media is operating under the understanding that if they did that, then they'll turn off that swingy middle. That's not even really what it, how it works, but that's sort of the the assumption being made um, when these questions are asked. And I think in order to clearly answer the question, you have to sort of look at it from the perspective of somebody who's not white, right? So I don't know if I don't know if every single person who supports Donald Trump is racist. That's not my job, right? To figure that out. That's between them and their whoever they believe in. Um they'll probably work through that. But the impact of what they believe does affect me. Um, and the impact of the policies on people who look like me could potentially affect me, but definitely affects people I care about. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the difficulty comes in when you are more concerned with offending them than you are with offending me. So when you say, no, I don't think the people that voted for Donald Trump are racist, but they have real concerns, you know. And some economic anxiety, that was one of the narratives that happened after the 2016 campaign. And what I always say is, I, I mean, I don't know if they're racist or not, but they, they definitely tolerated a very high level of racism in order to support Donald Trump. So what that means to me is that racism wasn't a deal breaker. Are they racist? I don't know. That's maybe a debate for another time or somebody else can figure that out who has more time. I don't have the time. What I'm looking at is the impact of their vote because the person they put into office has implemented policies that are in, impacting these groups. And, and, part of, and in that group are people that look like me and, and people who I care about. And so for me, it, it, it have, I don't want a Democratic Party that is afraid of offending the Trump voter more than they're afraid of offending black people and brown people who are being brutalized insulted and demeaned um, every single day of this presidency, 
whether it be through the fact that we're being gaslit to believe he's really doing good things for us. Um, you know, when he says, well, what do you have to lose? I've been the best black president for black people in the history of America, you know, um, or whether it's, um, you know, overtly offensive things that he says and does, particularly to brown people. But, you know, I think I've lived in this country long enough to know that, you know, if you are being discriminatory towards one group, um, it's just a matter of time until black people are in that group. But, 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 and that's a Dave, Dave Chappelle joke <laughs> as well. Um, but, but also um, that I care about other marginalized communities and I just want, I want the, the party, I want our nominee, I want the vice president to care about offending me more than he does about offending them. And you say one of the things uh, to do is to look for a candidate with a diverse staff. Because if there's a diverse staff, they're going to be bringing in concerns about health care, about child care, about taking care of elderly parents, um, and about a very outdated um, financial marker for what constitutes the federal privacy, uh, federal poverty line. Um, can you talk about some of those issues that you bring up in, in, your, bo- in your book, in the chapter, In Black Women We Trust? Oh, yeah. Um, I love that chapter. And I love um, the women I worked with uh, for Hillary Clinton. It's one of the little known facts that she hired more black women on her campaign than any in American history. And they that means that they were in every department. They weren't just, you know, they weren't just all in comms or all in, um, you know, the the digital team or whatever. They were all over, you know, the, a black woman built the back end of the website, a black woman um, you know, was a senior advisor, um, you know, shaping the messaging, a senior uh, policy advisor shaping the policy. Um, and so there were black women all over and, and I was surrounded by um, not just, you know, the fact that they were smart, but that their lived experiences, and I mean a diverse set of lived experiences that could, could inform just the way we saw the world. Um, and, and that is valuable to a political campaign, um, particularly in a moment where, similarly to right now, uh, two black men were in quick succession killed by police officers. So in 2016, in that summer, uh, Philando Castile and Alton Sterling were both killed by police officers in the same week. And then at the end of that week, um, police officers in Dallas were killed by, um, I, I guess, somebody affiliated with the protest. There was a Black Lives Matter protest at the end of that week in Dallas, and then somebody came. He was a veteran and killed police officers. And so, you know, I think the importance of having Black people, brown people, people of different backgrounds, socioeconomic geography, um, that's important because. When you are in the room coming up with the words, coming up the words that are going to come out of the mouth of the potential president, you just have to have all of those points of views reflected. They're going to be able to point out things that don't sound right, the things that come across as tone deaf, the, thing that, the things that may come across as racist or sexist. And, you know, if you have not, you don't have an ear for that because that's not your experience, um, then you're going to miss it. And so there, there are a lot of times where that happens. You know, 
this happens, you know, in, in corporate America sometimes all the time. Um, but I think that in politics, you know, when you're dealing with something so serious, I mean, in corporate America, a lot of times you're like selling a product. So if they, if they say something that's tone deaf in selling a product, like that's embarrassing and they'll lose a little money. Right. But if you say something in a political campaign or if, if, if a political administration does not have the appropriate representation, they could potentially implement a policy or have a blind spot for a policy outcome that could have real world consequences. Right. And so I think it's so critically important to ensure that the staff looks like the voters you're trying to win over. And if you look at a, a room full of political staffers and everyone looks the same, then you are doing it so wrong. Um, and you, you just have to make sure that, you know, people understand that the strength of your campaign is, is based on obviously the, the leadership and um, the experience of the candidate that you are working for but also the diversity and inclusivity of the staff that you have hired to go out and, and communicate your message effectively. And too often in political campaigns, political staffers look one way. And one of the things that I say in the book is that, you know, this is um, slowly becoming less true because there are organizations, especially since 2016, that have popped up uh, to help ensure that there is more representation in terms of political staffers. Um, but there's not a campaign school for black kids. There's not working on campaigns and in politics is not necessarily seen as a career for some reason. And I think, one, I hope the book changes that notion. But two, I think organizations uh, like Higher Heights for America, um, Jessica Bird from Emily's List has started an organization uh, post-2016 to train people to work on campaigns, to work in progressive politics. Um, Emily's List obviously is an organization that helps to elect pro-choice Democratic women. Obviously, they, they endorse and support um, a diverse uh, array of women from all backgrounds. And so I think we're moving towards that more, but there really is um, a dearth of a pipeline of young black political staffers in the same way that, you know, there's sort of a lack of that pipeline in other industries. But in politics, I feel like, you know, if there's not a pipeline of like diverse applicants in go into like study, you know, becoming a librarian. Like, I don't know what the, 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 the impact of that is long-term on, you know, life and death consequences, not to knock any librarians. Cause I know this, we all like books here. Um, but I, I just like, I'm, I'm, I don't even know what it, what the other example would be like a job that is important and valuable, but doesn't necessarily have to do with life and death policies. Right, politics is something that's infused throughout other industries. Is um, my larger point, and that it requires people who are working in um, in politics and in campaigns, setting those messages, um, creating sort of the platforms and frameworks for candidates um, to go out um, and make the changes that we need. Um, 
it's so important to me that, you know, your values are sort of reflected back in who you hire. Um, and so I, I, I think that there are more organizations popping up, um, but we still have a lot of work to do in that regard. And you say that the book is aspirational, that you're making a case for inclusion, that you're letting readers know that the future of America does not look like what you call a whites-only club. And you say that the whites need to know that they will be the minority by 2045. And you end the book by saying, because of all of these points that you've been making here, that you're offering this book, The End of White Politics, as the Democratic Party's secret weapon to success. In the last few minutes we have left, do you want to speak to that? Yeah, I mean, essentially it's like, look at the math. Um, the numbers are on our side in the sense that Republicans have established and defined themselves as a party that excludes certain groups of people, whether it be by their rhetoric or their policies. And so I think going forward, you know, because we have a two-party system, there's probably a whole other area of exploration in terms of whether or not that is good or bad. I have a lot of thoughts on that. But um, but I think that within the confines of the system that we have um, and the system as defined by two parties, Republican and Democratic Party, um, that going forward, particularly between now and 2045, it is our election to lose. We're the only game in town, right? And so we should start acting that way because Republicans are already acting as if they know where the data is headed, which is why they are trying to suppress the votes of black and brown voters because they know that those are the voters that are going to add up to majorities in the future. And I think we have to act like we know that, one, that they are they're the voters of the future, two, that the Republicans are trying to suppress those votes and that we are going to fight not only for their access to maintain the ability to cast their ballots um, and to build political power, but that we we don't just understand the issues, we are the issues. We live these issues and that our party, when you look around, it looks like you know the diverse array of experiences that America is. And I think, you know, the Democratic Party naturally has the capability of doing that. And I think, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley, Rashida Tlaib, and Ilhan Omar are the four newly elected members of Congress who are collectively known as the Squad, which is um, a nickname that they got from the media because of a photo um, they took after they did an interview after first being elected, and they were all first. So uh, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar are the two first Muslim congresswomen, elected Ayanna Presley's first black woman from uh, Massachusetts, and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the youngest woman elected to Congress in American history. And so she hashtagged the photo squad goals, because that's, you know, expression on the internet. And um, so they they got the nickname from that. Um, but I think that when I when I think about what they represent, um, in my view, what the end of white politics is is a template for the future, because the the squad is the future, and you know the squad represents 
you know, a diverse array of experiences. None of them have the same lived experiences um, or the same backgrounds. They're different ages and even different generations. Um, but they're a refreshing addition to the sometimes stale conversation we have in the media and in, in political circles um, because they're willing to call out certain things that people just let slide in the past, whether it be out and out sexism, out and out racism. Um, and I think that, you know, the way I see the future is when I look at them, I see the future and I see, I see myself reflected and it's not until you see yourself actually reflected in a position of power or even in, in a position of, you know, representation, um, you know, whether it be in media, film or art, you know, that's a profound moment for so many people when they finally see themselves reflected. And if you haven't ever worried about the fact that you weren't being reflected, um, you were, you're probably a white man, right? I mean, I think that, that it, it's just something you've never had to think about, right? I mean, it goes to the heart of what I say in the book is, is the privilege of sort of never having to think about these things before. Some of these things you've never had to be concerned about it because that's not your experience. Um, and so my hope is that going forward, we provide people with the ability to step up and to take the mantle of power into the future because we understand that part of the strength of our party is that diversity of experience and representation. Serlina Maxwell, thank you so much for being on the show today and telling us about your new book, The End of White Politics, How to Heal Our Liberal Divide, which is publishing this July 2020. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. You've been listening to New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. Please join us again.